The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, good morning everyone and uh, welcome back. So let us uh, continue where we left off yesterday. Uh, we've been having a look at the idea of right effort, uh, how to think about the world in a new way, how to uh, perceive things in a different way, uh, using one's mind to increase the wholesome qualities, uh, reduce the bad qualities, uh, and etc., uh, etc. Et this is what right effort is all about. And, as we have seen, a large part of right effort is the idea of using one's wisdom, using the right view of the Buddhist path to build up the good qualities inside, uh, to kind of sidestep the uh, using too much effort, because effort often is not that efficient in getting rid of things. Just using willpower is not really the solution usually, uh, and so we want to use wisdom as much as possible. Uh, and uh, as I have been pointing out, one of the greatest problems on the path is ill will. This is very destructive emotion and destroys the path. And the Buddha says it's relatively easy to overcome. Yeah, That's the good news. Not so hard to overcome. So we're going to look a little bit at how to deal with ill will. Resentment it's called here, but essentially it's the same kind of idea. So this Next sutta is spoken by Venerable Sariputta, who was the Buddha's right-hand monk. And um, Mahamoglan was his left-hand monk. I'm not sure left-hand monk doesn't sound as good as right-hand monk, but that's what he was. Uh, and uh, very often Venerable Sariputta was said to be the one who could kind of carry on the uh, dispensation, the teaching, rolling the wheel of the Dhamma in the absence of the Buddha. So he was praised as the wisest monk in the Sangha next to the Buddha himself. So uh, it's always kind of interesting to read that uh, sometimes you see Venerable Sariputta together with the Buddha and how they interact with each other. It's kind of fascinating sometimes. And uh, this, it's, you get this feeling that, the, that Venerable Sariputta had a very special position in the Sangha just by the way he interacts with the Buddha. I don't know, you probably you may know about the famous... Uh, meeting between the two when uh, the uh, uh, the Buddha says something and then he says to something about the five was it five spiritual faculties I can't remember exactly what the content was and then he says well do you believe me here and then Buddha says no <laughs> it's interesting right and then there was what do you mean no <laughs> and he says well no need for me to believe because I know this is true by myself yeah, and this is kind of interaction you sometimes feel with the Venerable Buddha, and the Buddha is kind of very high level of uh, uh, interaction. Uh, and uh, so, so these teachings are, for that reason, they are also very interesting. So uh, let's see what he has to say. This is about getting rid of ill will. This is found in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, the fives, number 162. And uh, this is one sutta I read at on every retreat, so just for your information. 
There the Venerable Sariputta addressed the monks or mendicants or monastics or everyone present really. Reverend mendicants, reverend, they replied and Venerable Sariputta said this. Venerables, a mendicant should use these five methods to completely get rid of resentment when it has arisen towards anyone. What five? In the case of a person whose behavior by way of body is impure, but whose behavior by speech, sorry, is impure by body and pure by speech, you should get resentment, get rid of resentment for that kind of person. In the case of a person whose behavior by speech is impure, but whose behavior by body is pure, you should get rid of resentment uh, towards that kind of person. In the case of a person whose behavior by body and speech is impure, but who gets an openness and clarity of the heart from time to time, you should get rid of resentment for that kind of person. In the case of a person whose behavior by body and speech is impure, and who does not get an openness and clarity of the heart from time to time, you should get rid of resentment for that kind of person. In the case of a person whose behavior by way of body and speech is pure, and who gets an openness and clarity of the heart from time to time, you should also get rid of resentment for that kind of person. So that's the summary of the teaching, five kinds of people. And uh, as I always like to point out, if you look at those kinds of people, they encompass everyone. There is no one really not included in that list. It is from the kind of worst kind of scallywag to the most pure kind of saint is included in that list and everyone in between as well. So what that means is that there is no basis for having resentment or ill will against anyone here, which is good news. Yeah, there is a method. There is no one that's kind of beyond having metta or compassion towards. You can have metta or compassion towards anyone. Here. That's kind of the good news here. There's no such thing as a limit. Okay, this kind of people, they are outside of what is possible. There is no such thing in Buddhism. And of course, this is one of the reasons for this is because of the idea of non-self. If there was a self and that self was inherently evil or something like that, then of course maybe metta would be impossible because there was an inherent problem with that person. But because there is no self and we are all conditioned into what we are, we're not really in charge of ourselves, we don't know what we're doing, we have somehow come into here, we don't know how we got into this place in life with our defilements, with our negative qualities, with the positive qualities as well, of course, because it's all kind of conditioned into us and there's no one really deciding these things or, or whatever. It means that compassion is always possible because you understand, in a sense, we are all victims in a sense. We're victims by the conditioning, victims of our past, victims of our habits, victims of our person personality. And this is... Um, kind of what this is about. So that means that you can rejoice in the good qualities and you can have compassion for the suffering of the bad qualities in people. So we're going to start by looking at the meta side, how to see the good qualities in people and then rejoicing in that. So starting with meta of 
the idea of overcoming ill will is the same as developing metta. There isn't really any difference between the two. Yeah. So, um, and then, um, uh, or compassion is also the alternative here. So let's see how this is done by the first one here. How should you get rid of resentment for a person whose behavior by body is impure, but whose behavior by speech is pure? Suppose a mendicant wearing rag robes sees a rag by the side of the road. They would hold it down with the left foot, spread it out with the right foot, tear, tear off what was intact and take it away with them. In the same way, at that time, you should ignore the person's impure behavior by way of body and focus on their pure behavior by way of speech. That is how to get rid of resentment for that person. So what we are doing here is we are looking at the good qualities of a person. Yeah, Everyone is a mixture of bad and good qualities, except for maybe the arahant. The arahant is pure, but apart from that, everyone has some degree of bad qualities. And so we learn to look at the good ones. We learn to focus on the good in people instead of looking at the, the bad things. And this is just a matter of perception. It's just a matter of shifting your attention in people. And when you do that, you can see the goodness in almost anyone, especially in people you know, who are good people, people who come to the BSV, people who come to the BSWA. Your fellow monastics are usually, most of the time, really good people. At least they're trying really hard. And uh, the same thing with people here, even though they may not be perfect, even though it is easy to see the faults if you really want to, uh, it's wonderful that people even come here. Yeah, wonderful that people are part of a spiritual and Buddhist community and try, they want to improve themselves, they want to change the world to make the world a better place. Uh, what a wonderful thing that is. It is worthy of enormous respect, it is worthy of care and compassion, all of these things when people do this. Uh, so everyone here deserves that benefit of the Tao, they deserve to be looked upon as good people because they are serious about spiritual practice. Uh, no one would come here, no one would choose to keep the five precepts deliberately. Uh, no one would choose to keep the eight precepts, lo and behold. That's even even more amazing. Yeah, It's like a restraint of things, uh, avoiding the, many of the pleasures of the world. Well, how, how would you do that unless you were aspiring for something high and something wonderful? Uh, and the same is true for monastics. Uh, why would anyone want to become a monastic uh, unless they were aspiring for something high? In ancient India, sometimes people would become monastics for all kinds of reasons. They become monastic because they was easy way to find food. Yeah, okay, you eat well as a monastic. Uh, as it says in the suttas, there's a famous passage where there was a young man called Upali, he had 17 friends. And then Upali went to his parents and he said, Oh, I'd like to go forth with my 17, my 16 friends. I think Upali was number 17. And then his parents thought, Yeah, you know, monastics, they live well, they have nice meal, they sleep on nice beds, sheltered from the wind. That was what it says in the, in the vineyard. They sleep on nice beds, sheltered from the wind. That's what it says. They eat well. Okay, become monks. <laughs> 
And that was kind of the idea of why they become a monk, yeah, because you were well or because uh, yet the uh, the Buddhists had a really good doctor, Dr. Jivaka, who you may remember. If you travel to Rajagaha in the present day, you can go to Jivaka's Ambapala. Ambapala is the mango grove, yeah. Amba is a mango. Pala is like guardian. Uh, no, sorry, um, Jivaka's um, no, sorry, Ambavana, Ambavana grove is a vana. Not Ambapala means the guardian of the mangoes. Uh, does it say? Do you say Amba in Sinhala language? Uh, you, same word. Uh, same word. Okay. Well, exactly the same. That's good. <laughs> That's kind of nice, isn't it? Uh, so very. So. Um, so the, so the idea is, but in general, you can say, you know, if people become monastics or they are serious about Buddhist practice as lay people, it is because there's something really wonderful going on. Uh, and uh, so this is uh, marvelous. So we focus on that. We remember that. And there's always going to be times when our fellow people irritate us a little bit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've had some of you coming in the interview and say to me, oh, you know, these people, they do this, they do that. Uh, it's irritating. What should I do? Okay, forget about it. <laughs> it's nothing. Yeah, it's a small thing. Yeah, you have to expect other people to irritate you. This is to be expected in life because other people they perceive differently, they think differently, they're coming from a different background, a different understanding. Of course, they're going to irritate you. <laughs> That's life. Yeah, so forget about it. It's nothing. It's just a slightly different perception. Yeah, of what is right and what is appropriate. Instead, focus on the goodness. There's so much goodness there. And then you rejoice in that. Okay, forget about that small nonsense, uh, yeah, which is kind of irrelevant. Uh, we have to be big-minded in Buddhism, not small-minded. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to work. Yeah. So we learn to focus on what is good in people. And uh, this beautiful simile here, that is kind of a, really kind of a classic simile, uh, the ragrobe-wearing uh, mendicant. Yeah? You, have, you don't have a ragrobe. I have a I have a rag sitting cloth. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's pretty, pretty impressive, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, rag robes, still find that in monks in the present day. And of course, if you are a rag robe wearer, you're looking out for rags. Yeah. You want rags because you want to use them to repair your rag robe. And rag robe falls apart quite easily and it's kind of a dodgy robe. So you're look, looking out for rags. So this rag robe wearing monk, he wanders around and he sees a rag by the roadside, uh, yeah, or by the path maybe. In those days it was more like a path than a road. Uh, and then he's so happy, he sees this rag. Yay, a rag. <laughs> and then he takes hold of that rag and he holds it down with the left foot and spreads it out with the right foot. Uh, and you can imagine, the rag here is like a person, yeah? <laughs> The person is like a rag. You spread out the person. You spread out all the quality of the person in your mind. You see everything that is there. You look at that person. You, you, you accept, okay, there are some bad qualities. There are good qualities. Yeah? And then you take that rag. You take that person. You tear off the part which is no good. Yeah? The soiled part, the rotten part. And then you take the good part. And the good part is what is useful for sewing into your robe. You fold it up nicely and you carry it with you. And then when you require it in the future, you fix your robe with it. You make your robe beautiful again. In the same way, you take that person, you see the bad qualities, you tear off the bad ones. You throw them out. The bad qualities are rubbish. Yeah, they are useless. They're not going to help you on your spiritual paths. You chuck out the bad qualities of the person. You throw them in the toilet. 
and you flush down and there's a kind of this nice idea that Ajahn, I think Ajahn Brahm is where I heard it from first I hear almost everything from Ajahn Brahm that's I'm completely brainwashed by Ajahn Brahm but he, he had this idea that when you see the good qualities you write the qualities on toilet paper yeah very handy toilet paper and you, and you tear off the bad ones and you flush it down in the toilet why because they are like uh, you know <laughs> that's where they are worthy they belong in the toilet because they are no they are useless for us as a as spiritual people you throw out those bad qualities and you keep the good qualities in your heart that's what you remember in people you look for the good things in the world you see the good things you don't focus on the bad things in people around you and it's fascinating one of the things about someone like Ajahn Brahm is that he always sees the good in people I'm amazed I don't know how he does it but he would never he, you know you can't make him see the bad qualities in people and he always talks about the good things and it's like sometimes he said, but Ajahn, can't you see? Oh yeah, no, that's whatever. Yeah, and he doesn't even see that side of people. He always sees the good. And it's very, I don't know, there's something very powerful and beautiful about that. Yeah, and it's very kind of, um, I don't know, you can see why he is a happy person. Yeah, because he always sees the good. He, he never, you know, he never, you know, goes back to his cutie. Yeah. He remembers the good things and then you rejoice. And then you go into good, deep meditation as a consequence. Of course, we have to be a little bit careful. It is important not to block out the bad things altogether. And sometimes if you do block out the bad things altogether, you can get some nasty surprises when people then do wrong things. So I think it's okay to see, to be honest, and to be roughly have a rough idea what people are like. Otherwise, you can end up with a lot of grief for yourself if you pretend, if you suppress the bad things that are there. So there is a balance here between seeing the good, but when there are bad qualities, it is not so much that you focus on them, it's more that you know that they are there and you forgive it because you know that you know all people have their bad qualities and all people have their problems. And you forgive that because you know that this is just what it is to be a human being. This is how we have been conditioned. It's nothing we can really do much about. So you have an awareness Although you focus on the good, you have an awareness of the bad in the background. So it's important to have a balance in these things. And so this is why both compassion and metta are important. Through compassion, we forgive the bad qualities. Through metta, we focus on the good and we rejoice in the good qualities. So focus on the good, rejoice in that. It's marvelous that people have good qualities. It's not, shouldn't, it's not a given thing that people will have good qualities. How come everyone doesn't have just bad qualities? If you look at the world and you see kind of the how we are, you know, the things that are happening in the world, you'd think there's a good reason for thinking everyone would just be bad, yeah, sometimes. But actually, it's not really the case. There's so much goodness going on under the surface. I'm always fascinated by things like wars. Yeah, what, is go- what goes on in a war, like in Ukraine right now? What is actually going on? Is everyone really suffering enormously? That's sometimes the idea that you might have. Yeah, wars are arenas of suffering and of course they are arenas of suffering there's a lot of bad things happening in wars uh, but there's also things going on in wars that are actually very hopeful for humanity uh, i was read an article about ukraine at some time ago a couple of weeks ago or something uh, and it said that a lot of people 
were feeling happy during the war. Yeah, they were feeling like, wow, now we're kind of getting together. We're working together. We're having compassion for each other. We're looking after the ill. We are. We have like a common enemy. Often, a common enemy is what is required for people to come together. It's a bit unfortunate. It has to be like that. But the fact that it is like that means that there is sometimes an underlying joy and happiness even when things are really terrible like in like in a war situation so things are often not quite the way they seem yeah and that's why there's often all these things happening under the surface actually are very positive and very good in life and uh, it so uh, you get this thing that looks terrible but actually is not necessarily quite as bad So uh, this is uh, what we do. We shift our attention. Uh, and uh, sometimes people say, well, but is one of the things I like about this is uh, kind of the philosophical side of this. Uh, is this really being realistic uh, to look at just the good qualities in someone? Or does this mean that we are not being realistic? Aren't we supposed to be realistic? We're supposed to see things according with in accordance with reality. But if we just look at the good qualities, aren't we deluding ourselves? And uh, the answer is that there is no way, particular way of looking at another person. Different people see the same person in different ways. Uh, there isn't a neutral object, a neutral person uh, that you can say, this is what this person is like. We're always changing. Uh, you know, if you are unlucky, you see that person on a bad day, they might give a very bad impression. You see them on a good day, you may think they're a saint. Yeah, because we're kind of, we're like this, yeah. We can, one day we're really wonderful, and another day we are really down in the dumps. Yeah, you know what it's like. You get out of the bed on the wrong side in the morning, and boy, you have a bad day as a consequence. Yeah. That's often what life is like. Yeah. Except if you are someone like Ajahn Brahm, you don't have many bad days. You always get out on the right side. Yeah. That's kind of the wisdom. So learn to get out of the bed on the right side every day. Yeah. That's the bottom line here. Yeah. So you learn that there isn't a person you can judge rightly. Yeah. There is no right way of seeing another person. There's always these changeable qualities. Yeah. So instead of trying to see the person as they actually are, which means non-self, it doesn't mean the qualities. Uh, we ask ourselves the question, how should I see the person in a way that is beneficial for my practice? If there isn't any real person behind it that you can judge one way or the other, the question is, what is the right way of thinking about someone that did actually lead to my practice improving? That is the right way to think about it. Uh, yeah, so there is a right here, does not mean in accordance with reality, right means is how will it benefit my practice. So this is a kind of a different way of thinking about things because there isn't any underlying truth. And so then we are on the right track. So this is what metta is about. Yeah, large part of metta is about being able to see the goodness in others. And when you do metta meditation, that is what it is about. You focus on the good qualities in someone. That's why you don't kind of focus on on someone you don't like when you do your meditation. You focus on something wonderful and marvelous, something you can really respect, you can feel good about. And then that metta meditation works on that basis. So that is the first person. And... Uh, Let's have a look at the second person here.
Mm. Thank you for bringing water every day. That's very kind of you. Huh? Just the right temperature. Huh? Beautiful temperature. I don't know how you how you make it just right, but for me it feels exactly right. Huh? Not one degree too hot, not one degree too cold. Huh? Hmm. Okay. So uh, let's have a look at the second person here. How should you get rid of resentment for a person whose behavior by speech is impure, but whose behavior by body is pure? Suppose there was a lotus pond covered with moss and aquatic plants. Then along comes a person struggling in the oppressive heat, weary, weary thirsty and parched. They would plunge into the lotus pond, sweep away the moss and the aquatic plants, drink from their cupped hands and be on their way. In the same way, at that time, you should ignore the person's impure behavior by way of speech and focus on their pure behavior by way of body. That is how to get rid of resentment for that person. So here someone has slightly different Good qualities, yeah, sometimes you have to shift your perception a little bit to see different good qualities. And here we have a different simile. The general idea is the same, but the simile is different. So here, instead of taking the intact cloth, here you imbibe, you drink up the good qualities of the other person. It's even more kind of suggestive of what we're doing. We're taking it into our mind. Yeah. So the lotus pond here is the person. The moss and the aquatic plants is the um, the defilements, yeah, the negative qualities. And so you come along, and uh, this person is an interesting kind of person. You're kind of struggling in the oppressive heat, yeah. And heat, of course, is always a in the suttas is always a, a metaphor for defilements, yeah. The heat is the heat of the mind, and they have the kind of you know you're getting angry yeah with this person and you're getting you're having resentment towards them uh, so you feel the inner heat uh, and you are weary that's what we said before the idea that when you have anger and ill will you it tires you out not at the time at the time you feel really energetic yeah? but then when you overcome that anger afterwards you feel depleted yeah you're weary this is the problem with anger yeah? and the idea of thirst here well Thirsty is like you are, you are craving for something, you're trying to find a solution one way or another. And uh, this thirst yeah, is the ability to overcome that anger. Ultimately, you want to overcome it if you're wise. So you're thirsty like for a solution. So uh, this is the uh, idea here. You're parched, yeah, you're slightly burned by this anger. You want to overcome it. Uh, and so what do you do? You plunge into that lotus pond. Yeah, this other person is there. You kind of plunge into their qualities. You sweep away the moss and the aquatic plants, the negative qualities. You just sweep them to one side. You don't want to have anything to do with them. And then you imbibe, you drink the water underneath from your cupped hands. Anjalika is the word for cupped hands. It's the same word as anjali. Because anjali is a bit like cupping your hands, I suppose. And then you're on your way. So you take in these uh, 
qualities. Yeah, you take them really on board. You imbibe them. You drink them with your mind, and you remember those qualities for the future. You do not remember those other qualities. You forgive the negative things. You just uh, you know they're not important. Uh, you know in the back of your mind that they are there, but it's not something you focus on because it is the rejoicing in the good qualities that is important. Uh, and of course, once you have drunk them, taken them aboard, well, then you carry them with you. Uh, you. Carry them with you wherever you go. You put them in your mind. Uh, you have a little shelf in your mind uh, where it says, a little shelf says Ajahn Nisarano in your mind. Uh, and that shelf is kind of really high up and, you know, the shelf of good people, yeah? So the shelf of good people is really full. There are lots of people in there. Uh, and then the shelf of bad people is kind of empty uh, because you don't have any bad people in your mind. Uh, and then when you need that, when, you know, if, if Ajahn Nisarano ever were to irritate me, I'm not saying that he does, but if he were to irritate me, I would go to that shelf uh, and I would bring down the perception and I would say, whoa, okay, cool down, relax, uh, no need to be irritated, yeah? It's not that someone irritates you, it's that you allow yourself to be irritated. So it's really, you have to take responsibility for that. Uh. So you have those perceptions ready, you build them up in your mind, yeah? And if you have people in your life that you find difficult, uh, there's often specific people you find hard for whatever reason, then you learn to look at those people in a new way. So you build up that perception that you can put on that shelf in your mind, yeah? And you remind yourself, actually, they are good people. There's something there which is really worthy of respect, worthy of honor. And then you bring that down when you need it to overcome the heat in the mind and the problems that otherwise arise. So uh, that is the way of metta. And um, let's move on to the next one. And how should you get rid of ill will for a person whose behavior by body and speech is impure, but who gets an openness and clarity of the heart from time to time? Suppose there was a little water in a cow's hoofprint. Then along comes a person struggling in the oppressive heat, weary, thirsty, and parched. They might think, this little bit of water is in the cow's hoofprint. If I drink it with my cupped hands or a bowl, I'll stir it and disturb it, making it undrinkable. Why don't I get down on all fours and drink it up like a cow, then be on my way? So that's what they do. In the same way, at that time, you should ignore the person's impure behavior by way of speech and body and focus on the fact that they get an openness and clarity of the heart from time to time. That's how to get rid of resentment for that person. So here is a person with not many good qualities. They are like a small puddle of water, yeah, a tiny puddle of water. And uh, that water is clear, uh, but there's not much of it, so you have to be very careful. Uh, and uh, so you, uh, you can't really drink it in an ordinary way. You have, to, you have to actually put in quite a bit of effort. Yeah, You have to get down on all fours, uh, maybe lie down on your tummy, on the ground maybe, uh, and then suck up that water. Uh, yeah, That's what you have to do. Uh, can you imagine? So you're trying really hard. You have to put extra effort uh, into getting hold of that pure water, uh, the tiny amount that is actually there. Uh, and uh, so that's what you do. Uh, 
And in the same way, you had to put an extra effort to see the good qualities in people. Because often there is good qualities to be seen if you are, you know, if you really try. And you can see how hard it can be to see the good qualities. If someone has a bad behavior by body and by speech, well, then most, a lot of the externals are going to look, not look so good. Yeah, it's very easy to judge a person like that. But interestingly, even though that is the case, they may have some inner qualities that are worthy of respect. And those inner qualities is the openness and clarity of the heart. Literally, what this means is means freedom from the hindrances. This is what it means in Pali. Vivarana is the opposite of Nivarana. So sometimes they get this freedom of hindrances within, even though their body and speech is bad. And so you have to see that. And it takes quite a bit of you know effort to see those things uh, because you have to like look through them a little bit, see beyond the external expressions, uh, and to see what is behind. Uh, and sometimes you can see that you can see that some people have good qualities, uh, uh, like in a deeper level. Yeah, sometimes they are peaceful, uh, and so you really have to try very hard. And this is, I find this fascinating here that the Buddha goes to such not the Buddha, Venerable Sariputta, presumably the Buddha as well, goes to such. A, an extent to see the good qualities in people. Uh, yeah, it is easy to kind of say, okay, I'm, I'm giving up with this person, okay, let's try compassion instead because this person, I can only have compassion for them because they're so dodgy. So you try to have compassion here. <laughs> and, uh, but the Buddha goes a long way with trying to have metta instead of compassion. Uh, and this is, a, I think, an important point. Uh, yeah, when you uh, read the suttas, metta, Always first, yeah, metta first, then karuna, number two, then mudita, then upeka, always in that sequence, the four Brahma Viharas. And as always, there is a reason why there is that sequence. These sequences are not random, yeah, there is a reason why the Buddha says that. If metta is first, it means it is the most important quality to develop. Karuna is second, number two, compassion is number two. And when you read the suttas, you see that metta is the thing which is talked about the most often. Yeah, metta is, you find that in places like the Kakachupama uh, Sutta, uh, the simile of the saw, yeah, Majjhimarika number 21. It is really about the developing of metta, that's that sutta. And uh, the metta sutta, of course, yeah, the famous sutta from the Sutta Nipata, uh, Karaniya, Karaniya Matta Kusalena, etc. Metanisangsa suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya. Yeah, these are all suttas about metta. So metta is what is focused on the most. And there is a reason for that. And the reason is, I think, fairly obvious that when you have metta, it's always a positive result for metta. When you see the goodness in other people, it can never have a negative outcome. Yeah, or maybe much more difficult to have a negative outcome with that. You're seeing the good, you feel good about yourself, and it creates harmony, creates all of these kind of things. Whereas the other Brahma Viharas are more difficult. Upeka often means kind of just indifference. Yeah, it is not you not really have real upeka. You have a kind of lower kind of upeka, which doesn't mean very much. Mudita, rejoicing in others. This beautiful quality can be sometimes difficult to do. Karuna, compassion, is that when you have compassion for someone, it means that you are focusing on suffering. And when we focus on the suffering in other people, it can also lead astray. It can lead us to feeling maybe sad yeah, or feeling bad about things. It can drain our energy if we don't do it the right way. This is one of the interesting things about the very important distinction between empathy and compassion. 
Yeah, there is in empathy and compassion are two quite different things. And what the Buddha is talking about is compassion, not empathy. And yet it can be difficult sometimes to pull them apart. What is empathy? Empathy means to try to feel what the other person is feeling. Yeah. If the other person is feeling sad, you try to put yourself in their shoes and try to feel what they are feeling. Yeah. And if you do that too much, you can do it a little bit to kind of get some insight into what's going on. But if you do it too much, it can drain you. Huh? You can be completely incapable of, of acting because you just feel drained because you feel exactly like the other person is feeling or similar to them. If they are really depressed, after a while you start getting depressed. You know what it's like if you're around depressed people too much, after a while you start feeling a little bit the same. Or, so you have to be, so that's why too much empathy actually blocks you from being able to act and live properly. Huh? There are some examples in Buddhism where they have gone, gone too far down the track of empathy. Huh? And people lost their ability to live properly and to live well. They lost all their energy because they were trying to take on all the burdens of everyone in the world. This was one of those famous Buddhist practices. Take on all the suffering in the world. And if you take on all the suffering in the world, you, you get paralyzed because it's just impossible to deal with it. It's just too much. So instead of empathy, we try to have compassion. What is compassion? Well, compassion is instead of taking on all the suffering of everyone else, it is to wish freedom from suffering. And that's quite different. It is to try to see the solution. It is the desire to help someone who is suffering. And that desire to help, the desire to see a solution to the problem, is actually a positive feeling. It is something which feels good. You want to help someone out, you want to take it in the right direction. So it's important to make that distinction between empathy on the one hand, which can be very, can be draining if you get it wrong, and compassion, which is this positive desire to help alleviate the suffering in the world. The latter is a source for happiness. The former can very quickly be a source for suffering for yourself. So, we should try metta, first of all, because karuna can be too close to empathy, it can be too close to seeing the suffering, and it can become painful. So this is why the Buddha, Venerable Sariputta, goes so far in trying to uh, do metta, first of all, and then karuna coming later on. So you focus very narrowly on those good qualities that are there. Get down on all your fours like a cow. I like that. The cow, the cow meta is kind of what this is about. So let us move on to the next one here. And actually, I should say a little bit more about what it, yeah, I already said maybe enough. The openness, heart, clarity of the heart just means that you get rid of the hindrances. You have a bit of samadhi, you get some good meditation, you get some good feelings within. Yeah. And uh, it's always fascinating, you know, in Buddhism we talk about uh, the power of past habits and things. Uh, and here is someone, even though they have good behavior by body and speech, still they get this. And sometimes people get this the wrong way and they think this means that you can have good meditation even though your behavior is really bad. So, you know, don't worry so much about your behavior because good meditation is available regardless. Well, that would be the wrong conclusion to draw from this. Uh, this here is they have that despite their bad behavior. They have some karma from the past, some habits from the past that enable them to access those things, 
even though they are behaving badly in this life. Uh, so that is like, this sometimes happens. Uh, it doesn't mean that the bad behavior is still going to have a detrimental effect in the long run, uh, even though in the short run they may be able to keep that good meditation. Uh. And sometimes you see that. You can see spiritual teachers who may be very powerful in one way, but then they start misbehaving in other ways. Uh. It's quite a common thing you can see in the world. Uh. Anyway, let's come to the next person. This is an even worse case. <laughs> How should you get rid of resentment for a person whose behavior by way of body and speech is impure and who does not get an openness and clarity of the heart from time to time? So this is where you cannot see any good qualities anymore. Yeah, All you see is bad things all the way through to the core, rotten to the core as they say. And uh, what do we do then? And of course, what happens now is that metta is no longer possible. You cannot see good qualities where there are no good qualities to be seen. So in this case, this is where compassion comes in. You have tried your very best to see good qualities. Now is the time for compassion. Now, the, the first thing to remember, which I usually like to point out in these cases, is that when we say that there are no good qualities to be seen, it does not mean that the person doesn't have any good qualities. Uh, they may be there, but we may not be able to see them. Uh, and this is an important point, uh, that uh, we are always open, we always give the person the potential to change, uh, to become different. Uh, yeah? If we say, this is a bad person, we box them in once and for all, we're not giving them the opportunity to alter, to become a different person. Uh, that is already a lack of kindness and compassion to box people in to say this is how you are I refuse to deal with you so we should always we should never be too strong in our judgment okay I can't see the good qualities now but they may be there I will allow you to change I will encourage you to change even and maybe down the track I will have to re-evaluate what I see in this person and that is in itself a kind of kindness and compassion not to uh, to box people in too much into being a particular kind of person one way or another. Yeah. So how do we, what do we do here? And this is the simile uh, in this particular case. Suppose a person uh, was traveling along a road uh, and they were sick, suffering, gravely ill. And it was a long way to the village, whether ahead or behind. And they didn't have any suitable food or medicine, or a competent carer, or someone to bring them to the neighborhood of a village. Then another person traveling along the road sees them, and thinks of them with nothing but compassion, kindness and sympathy. Oh, may this person get suitable food or medicine, or a competent carer, or someone to bring them to the neighborhood of a village. Why is that? So that don't come to ruin right here. So this is the idea of someone who is sick, yeah, someone who is ill, someone who has no idea, someone who is just moving in the wrong direction. And especially if they have no medicine, of course, they're moving towards their own demise and death and all of these kind of things. And so how do you think about a person who is sick, who doesn't have anyone to help them? They're kind of staggering along, yeah, desperate for some kind of support, but feeling really out of it. And of course, the normal 
way of thinking about a person like that is to have a sense of compassion. It is not their fault that they are sick. Sickness happens to everyone. You're born with a body. You're going to get sick every now and again. This is the nature of existence. And so because of that, you feel compassion towards them. You want to help them because they don't really, you know, it's not as if they deserve that sickness or anything. It's just what happens to a person. And in the same way, yeah, and this is what is so powerful about this, is that uh, people who have no good qualities, they are sick, essentially. It is not really their fault, just like a sick person is not their fault. If you have lots of bad qualities, it's not really your fault. You didn't choose to have bad qualities. No one chooses to have bad qualities, and yet you have them. You get born into this life, you get conditioned in a certain way with those bad qualities, and you have no choice. Your personality has been formed in a certain way. You can never step out of that personality and say, I am no longer going to be Ajahn Brahmali, now I'm going to be Ajahn Nisaranoha. I can't do that. Yeah, it's impossible. You have to be who you are. This is how you have been shaped in this life. You cannot really change that, not on the spot anyway. Maybe over time you can change it, but not on the spot. So you are trapped, that's what I mean by trapped in your personality, trapped in those qualities, trapped in the habits from the past. And when you see that people are trapped, you have compassion for them. Yeah, what else can you do? It's kind of crazy to get angry with someone who is in a cage and they are trapped and they can't go anywhere. And this is really what people are like. This is a very beautiful way. And then you can see that just like the sick person is trapped by their sickness, people are trapped by their mental defilements and their mental proclivities. And so then compassion arises. You want to help them. You want to show them the way. You want to find an attendant. You want to find someone who can bring the medicine. The medicine is the Dhamma. The attendant is the Buddha, yeah, in a way, or he's a doctor or whatever. And you want to help them in this way. You tell them, well, if you practice well, if you practice with kindness, then marvelous, you're going to overcome this. You're going to move out of these things. You get rid of your illness. I just heard someone the other day, they told me the story, they're working in prison, and they, uh, well, there's prisoners, and I said it's really rough to work in prison because many of these prisoners aren't all that, uh, you know, friendly or kind or whatever, as you can imagine, but it's not always the case. And she said that, was, you know, one day she was talking to this prisoner, and she talks, said to this prisoner, well, if you keep these five precepts, she's a Buddhist, right, but then you probably never come back into prison again, and this prisoner said, oh, miss, you're a legend. Yeah? <laughs> As if he had never heard before about you know, being kind. It was completely unrealistic to be kind in this world. And suddenly someone points out there is this alternative way. Thank you for pointing out the alternative way. Yeah? Isn't that marvelous when that happens? It's so wonderful. We, you know, we, sometimes we give people the opportunity to hear some good things. And sometimes it really works. It really has an effect. This is that medicine, the Dhamma medicine, the Buddha as a physician or a doctor helping us find the way. And of course, the Dhamma is often is often compared to a medical diagnosis. Yeah, the diagnosis is dukkha. There is a cause for that, and the medicine is the noble eightfold path. It seems that the four noble truths are based on some kind of ancient medical model of how to diagnose illnesses and these kind of things. So, yeah, so this person is going to their ruin. So, in exactly the same way, 
At that time, when someone has all these bad qualities, you should ignore the impure behavior by body uh, and speech, uh, and the fact that they don't get an openness and clarity of the heart from time to time, uh, and think of them with nothing but compassion, kindness, and sympathy. Uh, oh, may this person give up bad conduct uh, by way of body, speech, and mind, uh, and develop good conduct by way of body, speech, and mind. Uh, why is that? Uh, so that with the breakup, when the body breaks up after death, they're not reborn in a place of loss, a bad place, the underworld or hell. That is how to get, resent, get rid of resentment for that person. It's very powerful ideas. Yeah, it's like we're looking at people in a very different way. The vast majority of people in the world, we look at each other as agents who are responsible for our conduct. And because you are fully responsible for your conduct, because you are the agent in your life, if you do bad things, it means you are a bad person because you are the way you express yourself. That's how most people see people. And it feels a bit like that also. Yeah, when we act, it feels like we are responsible to some extent. But remember, that is very much part of the Buddhist delusion of a self. The fact that we are responsible, the fact that we, you know, the sense of self makes it feel as if you are acting things out of your free will. But you're not. And this is kind of the Buddhist insight. So as Buddhists, we look at things in a very different way from other people. There is no basis really for judging people anymore. You can't say they are bad. They're just conditioned. And once you start to change that attitude towards non-self, towards conditioning, it means that it opens up this alternative way of looking at people. And when someone is kind of saying bad things to you, whatever, you have compassion for them. You know that this is, this is just conditioned. It's not really about you at all. It's about the other person. They are the one who have a problem because they are the one who treats someone who is a good person in a bad way. And it's kind of, as I mentioned before, there's something very beautiful about this because we, when we think about me, we think about the other person is uh, assaulting me or treating me badly, uh, then we kind of uh, retract into our shelf like a tortoise in, in the shell and kind of your little world becomes very small and the big bad world outside looks scary and we create a barrier between ourselves and others uh, and we, we create a small world by being self-centered. Uh, but if we turn that around, and instead of being self-centered in this way, focusing ourselves, we have compassion for the other person, suddenly we open up and we embrace the world instead. We have a large mind that reaches out. And it's a far less limited and unpleasant state when we do that. We get away from the self-centeredness, get away from the self-concern that is so common. Of course it's common. Of course we have self-concern because we feel ourselves the most. But still, it is a very limiting feeling. It is not ideal if you want to be happy. It's not a good feeling to have. Just like selfishness is a good, not a good feeling. Selfishness is similar in a sense because when you're selfish, it's this self-concern about me and my things. It's limiting. It's a small mind. It's a mind that doesn't reach out to the world. It creates barriers around you as if you, you live in this kind of uh, gated community that you hear about yeah, where everything is locked in and you can't really you have no contact with the world outside and it creates a distance between you and the world and this brings down those barriers takes away that enables us to kind of reach out to people and to deal with people in a new way so this is what compassion does in these kind of circumstances 
And obviously it is very useful because of that. Uh, but uh, remember, it is, uh, comes fairly long way down the list. Yeah? Uh, but there are people that you probably need to use these ideas too. Huh? Okay, let's go down to the, um, come down to the last one of the five. How should you get rid of resentment for a person whose behavior by way of body and speech is pure? and who gets an openness and clarity of the heart from time to time. So this is the saint, saintly person. Suppose there was a lotus pond with clear, sweet, cool water, clean with smooth banks, delightful and shaded by many trees. And along comes a person struggling in the oppressive heat, weary, thirsty and parched. They would plunge into the lotus pond to bathe and drink, and after emerging they would sit or lie down right there in the shade of the trees. So here there is a lotus pond, there's no moss, there's no aquatic plants, there's nothing, none of this stuff, there's no defilements, there's no problems at all. All there is is this beautiful water, clear, sweet, cool water, clean. Not only is the water cool, but even this surrounding area is nice. Yeah, It's like this person or this water emanates like a fragrance that goes beyond the person, moving out into the environment. The banks are beautiful, the shaded trees, you can hang around and kind of hang out with this, uh, uh, with this water. Huh? And then, of course, comes the person who is oppressed by the heat again. The angry person comes. And uh, this time it is so easy to get rid of that anger. All you have to do is to plunge into that pond. No need to push away the algae and the water plants, anything like that. Uh, you just jump into the water, you bathe and drink, and you understand that you have, are in the presence of something special. Uh, someone with beautiful qualities. Uh, because you are in the presence of someone special, you want to hang out there. You don't want to go anywhere else. And so you lie down in the shade of the trees or you sit down there. It's like you become a disciple of that person because you know that they are special and they have special qualities. So uh, this is kind of the uh, feeling yeah, when you are in the presence of someone who is has a lot of powerful and special qualities. That's what happens. You just want to become a disciple of that person. The people with lots of metta and kindness in the world, we are attracted to people like that. I'm sure you have noticed that in your own life. The, the really people who really attract you the most are the ones who are really kind, have lots of metta and kindness. And you kind of are drawn in towards that. And you want to hang out with them. And for goodness sake, do hang out with them. Yeah, It's good for you because there is a transmission through osmosis. They emanate goodness and you absorb that goodness whether you want to or not. Uh, so even if you don't want to be kind, you, this is the way to become kind. Yeah? If you, uh, even if you are resisting it a bit, uh, you just hang out with the people who are good. Uh, and then kindness just happens uh, and you become a better person as a consequence. Uh. Of course, it is not enough just to hang out. Yeah? I, sometimes I see people who just ha like to hang out with good people. And they just sit there and they kind of bathe in the glory of someone who is really nice. And that's kind of nice to do for a while, but then you have to do the practice yourself. Uh, otherwise it stops at a certain point. Uh, you hang out with Ajahn Ganha 
And Ajahn Ganha just sits there and smiles and everyone else smiles because it's so nice to hang out with Ajahn Ganha. But uh, there comes a point when you've got to do it yourself, yeah, because you cannot hang out with Ajahn Ganha all the time. What happens when Ajahn Ganha dies? He's already a bit sickly from all kinds of complications and and the diabetes or what, what have you. So what happens when you die? Well, then you can't hang out there anymore. Then you have to build up these qualities within. So you hang out for a while, but you also remember impermanence at the same time. Eventually, uh, you will have to be self-reliant. Anyway, in the same way, at that time, you should focus on that person's pure behavior by way of body and speech, and on the fact that they get an openness and clarity of the heart from time to time. And that is how to get rid of resentment for that person. Relying on a person who is impressive all around, the mind becomes confident. And that's such a beautiful little sentiment there at the very end. You know, where does faith and confidence come from? Why do we have confidence in the world? And it's such a useful thing to see people who are different, to see people who have different qualities. Because sometimes we don't really believe that things are possible. It's not possible to get rid of all anger. There's no way. Everyone has some degree of anger. It's impossible to get rid of all desires because desire is part of existence and life cannot be done. And sometimes you need to see a living example to be able to see that actually it is possible to live in a completely different way from the majority of people. And when you see that, it opens your eyes to a different possibility, a different reality. And this is such an important thing. yeah. And uh, so for the majority of people, you need that mixture of the one hand, the suttas of the Buddha, but on the other hand, of the living example uh, that points the way to show that these suttas are still living things. Uh, they're not dead, they're not just ink on paper, uh, but they are real things that actually uh, still function in the world after two and a half thousand years. Uh. So you need both of these things together, and then it becomes very powerful. Uh, and then it kind of spurs you in the right direction. Uh, and this is, uh, so this is uh, useful. Uh, so um, read the suttas, uh, hang out with uh, the good teachers, yeah, hang out with the Buddha in the suttas, and hang out with uh, existing teachers who still exist in the present day, and kind of combine that in a nice way. Uh, and then as you do that, you get, uh, uh, you, you kind of, it carries you forward on the path. Uh, you get both sides of this, so to speak, the living example and the ancient example coming together. To me, this is one of the most powerful things about an ancient religion like Buddhism, is that it has both. It has both a tradition and it has the, the, has the ancient tradition, it has the living tradition. And these two things coming together is what makes it powerful. The ancient tradition ensures that we are, ultimately, we our Faith and confidence is based on the Buddha, it's based on this ancient tradition, which means that we are not so easily, even if you know a teacher now turns out to be a bit dodgy or whatever, we can deal with that because we have something more. We have the ancient tradition that supports everything. It means that there is less focus on living people. There's less focus on having gurus and people who kind of uh, we worship as living embodiments of the Buddha. Let's focus on that. And that's a positive thing because it's very easy to get uh, disappointed and to go too far in worshiping living people. Everyone just worships the Buddha at the end of the day. It's a very positive thing. Yeah? On the other hand, we have the living example. It's not just a dead letter. Yeah? The two com coming together, I think, is very, very useful. Yeah? 
and then we are kind of on the right track yeah A mendicant should use these five methods to completely get rid of resentment when it has arisen towards anyone. So there you are, resentment sutta nitti tang. Nitti tang means ended. And uh, so uh, there you are. So from now on, you can't have any more ill will. Now, Now you know how to overcome it. So uh, we will check you out next time we're here and see if it has worked or not. <laughs> but it's nice to know that it is at least possible. Yeah, I, I find it was very kind of powerful to see these things on paper and to see the Buddha's explanation and to know that we can all move in that direction. Anyway, that's all for now. And please again have a nice lunch and we'll see you back again at two o'clock and let's pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.